0: within our own biology, we have the yin and yang of morality. We're obsessed with morality as social creatures. We need to know why people are doing what they're doing. So it's empathy that makes us connect to other people. It's empathy that makes us help other people. It's empathy that makes us moral. oxytocin is the trust molecule and it's so easy to cause people's brains to release oxytocin I know how to do it and my favorite way to do it is in fact the easiest let me show it to you come here give me a hug (laughs) there you go eight hugs a day we have found that people who release more oxytocin are happier and they're happier because they have better relationships of all types Eight hugs a day, you'll be happier, and the world will be a better place. Of course, if you don't like to touch people, I can always shove this up your nose. Thank you.
1: Hey, how are you? Great, Peter. Great to see you. Yeah, you too, man. It's yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Obviously, we've been chatting a little bit in the in the background, and I've taken a look into all of your your work and your TED talks. And yeah, man, it's it's a real pleasure to have you on. I think like before we dive into the crux of the conversation, let's maybe start with who you are, what you do, and why.
0: I've spent most of my career trying to figure out these really interesting creatures called humans, and particularly human social behavior. So I'm a behavioral neuroscientist. I run experiments and create technologies to allow people to live happier, healthier, and more fulfilled lives.
1: Yeah, amazing. Yeah, I was I was watching your TED Talk a little while ago on trust morality and oxytocin, and I wanted to maybe kick off by starting. How did you first get obsessed with the idea of morality, and yeah, what led you to studying oxytocin?
0: Yeah, those are kind of two issues. The morality issue is I had a very unusual childhood. My mother was a former Catholic nun, and then decided rather than torture school children in a Catholic school, she would uh, quit being a nun and get married, and torture her children. And so we had basically this very black and white view of morality. And in my view, most things are are, um, gray, right? I mean, there may be some absolutes, but, you know, I can see your perspective. I can see my perspective. I'm not always right. You're not always wrong. But my mom was very black and white. So we had a lot of clashes, but those are a great way to refine your thinking. And um, as I was kind of working a lot of different areas on human social connection, kind of happened across this molecule, oxytocin. They've been studied extensively in animals, but not in humans, uh, not from a behavioral perspective. And so I was able to develop a protocol to measure the brain's release of oxytocin, a very tiny little molecule, very sensitive, and then uh, showed how to shoot this into people's brain safely, which I've done hundreds and hundreds of times. So we can really understand this mechanism. So oxytocin, for listeners, is a, is a key signaling molecule in the brain that says that someone around you is safe, Or trustworthy or familiar and it essentially indexes the degree of social connection with that person so peter you're lovely and i'm sure my oxytocin is high now but if my little daughter comes in the room you know it's going to be higher
1: yeah definitely when was the first time like oxytocin came onto your radar and and i guess when was it that you started looking at like the the finite detail of of the whole science behind the work that you do.
0: Yeah, I was actually on a, on a a uh, going to a conference up in the mountains in California and was on, you know, academics are always short of money. So it's in the summertime at a ski resort. And so I saw a bunch of mountain bikers and then me and one other lady who's dressed nicely. So I said, hey, you, it's an hour lot drive. You must be in my conference. So started talking to her. Uh, her name is Helen Fisher, now a very dear friend, a famous anthropologist on relationships. And we were talking about uh, work I was doing on Uh, parent-child relationships and the biology of that. And she said, have you ever heard of oxytocin? I said, oh, barely. And she goes, you know, you ought to look at that. And I'd already been working on interpersonal trust, which I didn't tell her. And I'm like, hey, that's the mechanism I'm looking for. Like, how do we survive as social creatures around a whole bunch of strangers, which other animals by and large do not do unless they're related to them? How can we actually exist in London or New York or L.A.? and not be completely freaked out. Or or for that matter, get in an airplane with 400 other people and be bounced around for five hours. That's weird, right? So it's that social connection with that kind of crowdsourcing of this information that allows us to capture this activity. So I'm an inveterate stealer, Peter. I steal ideas from all kinds of disciplines and then recraft them into something new and hopefully useful.
1: And, and in respect to some of the studies that you've done, like uh, I remember watching your TED Talk and you were talking about um, how you – Gave oxytocin to uh, some of your colleagues. Like, was tell me tell me some of the tales of of what those initial experiences were.
0: Yeah, there was no way to measure this uh, in humans. Uh, So, oxytocin works as a as a neurochemical in the brain and as a hormone in the peripheral nervous system, primarily when women either breastfeed feed or give birth. Um, released by both sexes during sex. So birth, breastfeeding, and sex, all too messy to run in my lab. I don't want to get involved in those things. And so, yeah, we developed a protocol measuring very rapid blood draws to capture this three-minute half-life little spike of this chemical that says things are okay, things are safe. And so I was the initial pincushion. I, they, we just practiced really rapid blood draws and keeping things cold and uh, then recruited a bunch of people in my, in my group and say, we're just going to practice on you before we take this out to the general public. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, pioneered this way to, to shoot the synthetic oxytocin um, through the nose, up into the brain. And uh, all this really led us to, uh, I think, a more fundamental understanding of why as human beings, we need to be embedded in community, how important community is, whether that's in our family lives and our friends at work. Uh, and so that in, embeddedness is uh, a core part of our human nature because we are so hypersensitive and need that social information that we really can't survive on our own. So there's some rare hermits and all that, but basically we thrive when we're around others and that's kind of weird, right? Why am I just like me? Why can't that be, especially Americans, like we're selfish and we just want to do our own thing. Nope, actually that's not our biology. So I think that's what's the interesting new news from the work we did yeah, on oxytocin.
1: Yeah, and I guess like the community thing was interesting because I remember you talking a, a bit ago about in one of the presentations that I watched in the lead up to this about a trust and money transfer experiment, because that community element and also the the whole narrative in respect to to trust and the challenges that we see within society today, there is you know there's very very much a epidemic of isolation, there's a lot of separations throughout society. How does that interplay into, yeah, I guess, firstly, that experiment that you did versus um, the trust and the money transfer? And, yeah, I guess your view on the evolutions that we're seeing today.
0: Yeah, both excellent questions. Um, Yeah, so we wanted to create an opportunity for people to cooperate in which we could quantify their their degree of cooperation. So we use this task from Experimental Economics in which you can take money out of your account, ship it to a stranger via computer, and the money grows in size. And then the stranger controls that money, they can either keep it or send it back. So the view in economics and the view in evolutionary biology is, you know, nature is red right in tooth and claw. Resources are good. Money's good. I should keep all the money. So I call this caveman economics. What we showed is that the more money someone intentionally sends you, that says, hey, I'm going to give you some of my resources. Not because I'm a super nice person, but because I understand that as a social creature, you get you get the source of the interaction, right? I'm giving this money so it grows, and I'm hoping, believing, trusting that you'll return it. So the more money that people received, the more their brain produced oxytocin, and the more oxytocin they produced, the more they returned. So essentially, oxytocin is the biological basis for the golden rule. You're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. So we've also done work, Peter, on the anti-golden rule, which is uh, primarily driven by testosterone. Which is, mm-hmm. you want to play bad with me? I will play worse. You want to yeah. attack me? I'm going to fight like a banshee and I'm going to beat you up. Or you're going to steal my kids? You're going to have a hell of a hard time, right? So, so that's the balance that we have. So, one question is, you know, are human beings good or evil by nature? We're both. I can be evil. You put me in a terrible environment where uh, you know I have to fight for survival. I will fight for survival. You put me in an environment of safety, of connection, of community. And I'm happy to be super nice to everybody, usually. Now, and if we know that the the factors that interrupt that. Young, young man, which you and I both used to be, you're younger than me. You know, testosterone poison between 15 and 25, much more impulsive, much more aggressive, right? We don't control our emotions as well. As we get a little older, our testosterone reduces. Our brains don't wire up to where 30 years old, Peter. 30. So think how impulsive. I was, you were, when you were in your 20s, like just doing stupid stuff. So that's just, you know, the brain is slow to mature. And then you get older and you go, okay, well, I don't need to, you know, sorry, I'm use a bad word, but you know, I don't need to be a dick all the time. Like I can actually be a nice person and not lose yeah. face, not whatever. So I think that's kind of interesting. The downside of that is that men tend to have fewer friends than women do. We tend to invest less in relationships and so this epidemic of loneliness affects men more than women in general, although a lot of women are, are lonely as well. So the Surgeon General of the United States last month put out a study saying that about a one-third of Americans don't have a single person they can call if they need help. Like that is horrendous. That is not effective thriving for a social species like us, so what's the solution? invest in relationships ask your friends at work to go out a happy hour buy a dog by the way anyone dogs are great oxytocin releasers but also if you have a dog people come talk to you all the time so i got a giant 100 pound german shepherd lying on my feet i go to starbucks let me tell you all the baristas the 20 year old girls come out can i pet your dog it's so cute so you talk to people right so mm-hmm. you know think about this as an investment and i think that's the key takeaway for me and i'm a big introvert you can't tell now because i'm you know, can't shut me up but you know i can go without talking for hours and hours and hours and be totally fine but i have that dog everyone comes to talk to me
1: yeah that's and it's that interlink between trust as well in respect to you know when you if you want to build relationships a lot of it comes down to the foundation of how do you build that trust with the with a person and you know you, you have these commonalities and these common trends but i'm, I'm intrigued just to you know oxytocin in, in general and there are outliers and so why my oxytocin not have the same effect on everyone?
0: Yeah, so a couple of things. So in knowing the mechanism for social connection means I can quantify the promoters and inhibitors of that. So promoters, estrogen levels, right? Men have a teeny little bit of estrogen, women have a lot more. Estrogen actually increases the action of oxytocin, one reason why women tend to form more friendships. Testosterone, we talked about, inhibits testosterone. One of the potent inhibitors of social connection and oxytocin release is uh, high levels of stress, right? And we know that intuitively. When we're stressed out, when we haven't slept for 24 hours, we're not the nicest people, right? We're just kind of in survival mode. And so for those who face chronic stress, you know, they're actually inhibited from connecting to others, which is very interesting. So, you know, it's that, kind of four factors you can control that extend your health span and make you happier. Diet, exercise, sleep, and the fourth is the quality of your social connections. And so those four are kind of the trifecta that allow us to really live longer, happier, and healthier. Yeah.
1: I remember when I was watching your TED Talk, one of the things that stood out to me was the, uh, you're talking about a con man, I think it was at a petrol station, and how they were able to kind of manipulate, I would say. But yeah, could you elaborate on that kind of example that you you talked about? And um, was it, is this something that they're doing consciously or unconsciously?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, so when I was 17, I worked at a
1: gas station next to a
0: freeway in a kind of sketchy part of uh, California. And I was the victim of a con. So a guy came in uh, one day during the day and he said, hey, I found this uh, jewelry case with a beautiful pearl necklace in it, it and in the bathroom someone must have lost it and 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 i said oh you know, i'll put it in lost and found he said oh no 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 you know this is obviously very expensive look at this beautiful box it's in and, and you know you better hold on to it like this is important and i said well you know whatever you can keep it it's like oh i have a job interview I, I gotta go i gotta get this job and could you hold it for for whoever you know blah 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 whoever lost it and anyway, then the phone rings, the gas station, and someone goes, I was at your gas station a while ago and I lost a pearl necklace I bought for my wife, our anniversary. And this is the whole story and uh, you can see it coming. because so I've told you it's a con. Anyway, the guy who has it said, look, I can't stay. And the guy on the phone says, I'll give you a $200 reward if you give it back to me. I'm like, great. So the, the con man, the guy who found it, Says, hey, uh, let's split that reward. You're such a nice guy. I'm like, no, oh, I don't care. I just work here. It's no big deal. And no, no, no. You give me a hundred bucks, and then that's my half. And then when the guy comes, you know, he'll give you two hundred, and we both made a hundred bucks. I'm like, I guess so. You know, I'm seventeen. What do I know? So that's a great example of how to run a con. This is a classic con called the pigeon drop. Uh, people want to Google it later. And so. Yeah, it's a setup. Of course, that pearl necklace is paste and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And eventually I figured it out called the police. Of course, I borrowed the hundred dollars from the cash drawer. So I got to call my boss at home on a Sunday and go, um, by the way, you're gonna be hundred bucks short when you come in tomorrow morning. So that's embarrassing. So the the key of that con was not that I trusted the con man, is that he trusted me. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you this very expensive thing. That's the essence of this. He's showing how much he trusts me. And then here I am, a kid, and this adult male is asking me what we should we should do. Like, I don't know. You're the adult. You found it. Like, leave me out of it. But when he showed he trusts me, he manipulated my physiology and therefore my behavior so that I was a, a willing victim in this con. And, uh, and it's unfortunate. But I think that's the key takeaway. It's not that he immediately got, you know, why would I trust him? I don't know him. But once he showed he trusts me. Because of oxytocin, I want to reciprocate and do the same to him, and that's again the golden rule. That's how it generally works. And once this happened to you one time, you know, you generally know. Uh, interestingly, Peter, if I may, I wrote a blog about this in Psychology Today uh, twelve years ago, and you know, my blogs would get a thousand reads or something. That's good. This one got last I looked, it had a quarter million reads. It's called "How to Run a Con." People can find it. So it is interesting that there's a small group of bad actors. Who basically want to, you know, intuitively tap into these brain systems for social connection to take advantage of people? Sadly,
1: live and learn. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's one example of a potential fit pitfall. But in respect to the artificial boosting of one's oxytocin levels, you know, do you see any pitfalls in, in that? In respect to the wider risks,
0: uh, I, I have to reframe the question. So levels are irrelevant. The brain works on changes. Um, and so the, the change in oxytocin, again, sort of indexing the degree of connection, is a tunable system. So what we found in our research, and others have replicated this, is that for individuals who grow up in a safe nurturing environment, we have uh, caretakers who uh, have an interest in you, that the system develops properly so that if you've been nurtured, you know how to nurture others. And then we've just published research recently that people who have a history of service to others they volunteer, they're in caring professions, nurses, teachers, doctors. Um, they actually release more oxytocin as older individuals than do people who are um, don't have that history. Um, and so this is a tunable system. So if we create environments of community, of caring, of connection, then those individuals are going to be emotionally healthier and they will again replicate those behaviors and help those around them to be emotionally healthier. And I think that's, the most important takeaway of everything I've said now in the last you know half an hour is we can create a healthier society by connecting to others, caring for others. In a word, sharing our love with others.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's and also within those shared experiences, I'm, I'm intrigued as to some of the situations that you found yourself in. In respect to getting blood samples, I remember reading a, a while ago about some wedding ex- experiment that you did. Um, that's from quite a long time ago, but maybe elaborate on that and also other opportunities that you've taken to to kind of delve some sa- get some samples.
0: Yeah, so the original way we measured oxytocin was these very rapid blood draws, and now we have technology that lets us measure it um, literally from a, a app on a phone and a you know an Apple Watch or something, um, but. Then it was it was uh, before and after blood draws. And so we really wanted to explore, I really wanted to explore my team, the various natural ways, besides an experiment in a controlled lab, natural ways our brain releases oxytocin. So this is just down the road from you and Devin. A writer for the New Scientist magazine in the UK wanted to do a science experiment at her magazine, read about my work, and invited me to take blood from her, her to-be spouse, and the wedding party before and after the vows to actually see why we have these crazy ceremonies, right? They rented this mansion out in the country and, you know, I don't know, hundred some people came and food and it was expensive. So anyway, they flew me out. Uh, I came with a centrifuge and needles and syringes and tubes and dry ice, all kinds of things. And uh, and we found not only that um, the wedding itself on average, cause people to release oxytocin that, that pattern was just as I said, who's the center of the wedding universe? It's the bride. She reads the most oxytocin. Who loves the wedding almost as much as the bride? Her mother. She's number two, right? Then the father, the groom, and the greeno. So it's like these kind of planets. Like, you know, the bride's the center of the of the wedding solar system. And then as you get further out, you know, the the friends who didn't know the bride or groom very well, you know, at a little bit or none at all. And so that's interesting. I, I've been to Papua New Guinea in the rainforest to take um, blood samples to measure oxytocin release. in indigenous people, To ask, you know, in these isolated communities in the rainforest with no running water, no electricity, no bathrooms, you know, I spent a week in these villages measuring these people. And it was just an amazing experience. And it's the same response. So in, in really valid settings, not just a laboratory, this really works. And I think that's important for listeners. It's It's not only science you can use, but science that's really generalizable. I'm not just making random statements about, you know, two experiments I ran in my lab.
1: Yeah, definitely. Like Looking at the grand scheme of things, how do you think that oxytocin's role uh, in trust affects not just personal relationships, I guess, but also larger structures like global economies? That's a great question.
0: Uh, Certainly knowing the physiology at an individual level tells you at some level why trust is very high in Denmark, Norway, Finland, and tends to be lower in the UK and even lower in the US. So part of that is familiarity, right? So uh, uh, I have an appointment at a uh, medical school at Aarhus, Denmark. Thanks to all my friends in Aarhus. And, you know, Denmark, there's 5 million people. There's like four last names. They're all cousins is it surprising trust is high? No, they are all relate to each other. They're the only people in the world who speak Danish. You know, it's a small group of people. So when you get to more heterogeneous kind of countries, UK, US, um, you see that trust degrade. Now there also are uh, formal structures. We've done work on the kind of legal and informal social structures that support trust. So at the global level, you know, why trust is high and Denmark and low in Colombia that more more has sorry that has to do more with the legal and social structure than it does with the underlying biology so what you see in these low trust countries a lot of what we call in-group trust I'll trust mm-hmm. my family members my cousins my clan whatever that is but I'm not going to have general trust for some dude that you know looks different or talks different or from a different ethnic group or whatever on the other hand I Peter if I may my experience in Papua New Guinea which was kind of a, can I use bad words or can I share up?
1: Yeah, go for it.
0: It's kind of a shit show. So I came with a Japanese film crew and basically everything went wrong besides someone getting seriously injured or, or killed or something. I mean, it was just, it was, there's just no services in the rainforest and a bunch of things failed. So I was stuck there. couldn't do anything. And it's kind of stressed. Like there's, you know, we, we have a film crew with us and we're just, you know, it's a one-time experiment. It's got to work. and, and, I'm sitting there in, in a 30-hour travel for me to get there. I so haven't slept. And, you know, you're just kind of cranky. And the people in the village... Of course, I don't speak their language. There are 800 distinct languages in Papua New Guinea. This is how isolated these tribes are. So yeah. people came over. I'm just sitting there. I had a translator, but she was gone. And people came over and they started touching my hands. And all I could think of was that there's no running water here. There's no bathrooms. Where have these hands been? You know, I need some hand cleaner. I started kind of like getting freaked out. And then I realized... Man, don't be a jerk. These people want to greet you. They're welcoming you into their village of a thousand people. So I started Mm -hmm. playing with the kids and making faces with them, and they brought me into their they sort of these sacred huts where they have ceremonies. They brought me into their homes, and I really fell in love with these people. So I thought, man, what a loser I am! Like I I'm supposed to know a lot about human connection, and it took me you know I had to get over that hump to just get into the village, like. These people are lovely. I had this woman who, she was a grandmother. She was like 70 years old. Her teeth were missing and she would just hold onto my arm. She didn't say a word couldn't, and she would just walk around with me and just hold my arm. Man, I love this lady. You like your grandma. You know, she just, I don't know why she liked me. Other people weren't as nice to me, but she, I just fell in love with her. So, um, you know, that's what we should be doing, right? We shouldn't be complaining about, you know, I'm tired because I have to travel all the way here. No, enjoy the humans.
1: Yeah, definitely. How... I'm intrigued though because the the kind of having travelled quite a bit myself, the you know I remember I was I had the fortune of going to well a lot of different places, but one of the bits that stood out to me was I spent a lot of time within South Africa. I've spent a lot of time over in um, South America in the Amazon and such, and it's you know these unique experiences that you have with people. I'm intrigued as to you know the the compare and contrast between that kind of way of living in modern society and and how yeah in respect to connection trust community how that differs i
0: I think it's hard to do a general um response um but humans you know first seek safety before they seek connection so there's a lot of Um, still inter-village conflict. These are modulated by having, by essentially trading uh, females for marriage. So they'll marry across nearby villages to to form those family ties. But also infant mortality is really high. So when I first walked in this village in the rainforest of Papua New Guinea, I thought this is going to be big news, right? Like some giant white guy with a film crew. Like, I mean, they knew we were coming. We got lots of permissions. Took us two years to get permission to go there. It was very complicated. Governments were involved, lots of things. I saw this little boy two years old, kind of underfed, big distended stomach, naked, cold, got snot all over his nose. And this little boy looked at me like, could care less that you're here. He was so centered in his place. This was his place. This is not my place. And he was just this kind of wisdom, this kind of calmness of knowing where you are. And yet, if mortality is about twenty percent in in the rainforest in the Western Highlands in particular, and so they don't name their kids until they get to be two or three because a lot of them die, and you want to get over attached. And so, you know, when you're close to life and death, you, you know, you have to kind of make some trade offs on where you want to put your emotional energy. And I don't think it it's I don't have the right to critique or comment on whether that's right or wrong. It works for them, and that's uh, all I all I can report.
1: Yeah. I guess one of the one of the books that I came across that you'd written um, a while ago was the Moral Molecule, and um, looking in respect to to that kind of, can you walk me over just like the the broad strokes of of how you came to that piece of work, and also the situations where this molecule might lead us astray morally speaking?
0: Yeah. So the question is, why would we ever be nice to strangers? I mean, that's the science question, and the the social question. We know, you know, there's a big benefit of doing that. But once we had found a way to measure oxytocin and did, you know, 10 years worth of research, um, there was a question about why would ever, you know, um, kind of what promotes or inhibits oxytocin release, why we actually have um, near uniformity on what a moral uh, behavior is across the globe. Um, And so it's really was trying to put that in the context of um, different philosophical traditions and then draw conclusions about what it means to live a fulfilled human life. Um, and so uh, Aristotle said, you know, 2,300 years ago that um, to live a happy life, you have to live virtuously, right? It's called virtue ethics. So kind of do the right things basically. And the reason for that seems to be based on my research and lots of others is when you do the wrong things, if I'm selfish, if I'm a jerk, Then people avoid me. I become ostracized and that's not healthy for a social creature. We don't flourish when we're alone. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, this connection molecule tells us about that, tells us why young boys are going to be kind of jerks and they'll get over it, why we shouldn't get too excited about it. Tells us why over the metro cycle, women's behavior is going to change, affects oxytocin uh, uptake and, you know, kind of really deep insights into why the humans are so variable, but also not to get excited about it. Like you know, we're going to have ups and downs. We all do. And if it's someone you love or someone you work with, don't you know? Don't overdo it. Be tolerant. Really accept them for who they are. So I think the the story of that is that we are at our best when we accept people for exactly who they are, and we cannot expect them to be consistent. There, our brains are optimizing at millisecond frequency. We're going to be weird. You're weird, Peter. I'm weird. We're all weird um they don't we're not weird to ourselves we just seem normal but to everyone else around us we're going to seem weird so it means we should do the same we should have those around us and not freak out when they're being weird and not you know overweight some weird experience that they're creating
1: yeah and i guess that connection point you know leads us into more of a deeper dive into the premise of trust because another book that you wrote was the trust factor and um, looking in respect to to that what, what intrigued me the most i guess is the compare and contrast between trust and today's evolved corporate landscape like in the industry that I know and love which is the games industry we we have an awful lot of people kind of being made redundant at this point in time everybody's looking at the industry holistically and going you know like which direction are we taking here and a lot of people are mistrusting of wider corporations and that landscape in itself I'm I'm interested to to get your take on yeah like trust in today's corporate landscape and how does I guess oxytocin play into that? All
0: right, so I think when we first of all when we put people in a in a workplace, that's very natural for social creatures. We bond right away. We form friendships. We can work together on projects. And so, what's necessary to have uh, a, a low friction kind of environment from a human perspective is that um, we have trust. We um, have clarity on our purpose, like why we're doing what we're doing. We have clear goals. And for most of us, we get more satisfaction from work than we do from leisure time. Because at work, we have goals to achieve and and we have challenges. And in leisure, you know, unless you're on a sports team, maybe, you know, you're hanging out, taking a hike or taking a walk with your friends or going to happy hour. It's it's not not really goal oriented. So, you know, we like goals. We like the sense of purpose. And it's a reason for us to come together. So the question in that book was, how can we take the science of trust and apply it your organizations, and again, based on about ten years worth of work in real organizations, uh, you know, measuring people's physiological responses, their productivity, their satisfaction with their job, and um, what we found is, you know, basically eight components that form the foundation for organizational trust, and one of those is transparency. So, again, if I'm leading your games company and I'm not telling you what's going on. That's a stress response. If we don't know where we're going, then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm now stressed out. Remember, stress is, inhibits the connection, the oxytocin release. So now I have this double whammy, which is like, I don't trust anybody. It, are you going? Am I going? Who's going to get fired? Who's going to get laid off? Are, is our company going under? Right. So that kind of really radical transparency reduces a lot of that stress, um, allows people to uh, function effectively at work. And I think this is even more important now, Peter, than it has been because- We have record low unemployment rates uh, in all the developed world, including much of the developing world, and there's no more babies, right? No one's having babies. Have you noticed? You have too. Good for you. But no one's having babies anymore. So what are we going to do? We've got to keep the people working, not only physically healthy, but emotionally healthy. And part of that is having trust, establishing psychological safety. And the book kind of goes through a very systematic way. Of how to create that high trust, high performance workplace. So again, if it doesn't induce more performance, if it's high trust because it feels good and we sing kumbaya, that's nice. But the key takeaway here is that high trust workplaces perform better on you know a dozen different metrics.
1: Yeah, and I guess that high trust, high performance, you know, level and and mantra and and, and viewpoint is is there any standout examples that you can kind of touch upon where they are? clearly high-trust and high-performing organizations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think one of those is uh, WR Gore. They make Gore-Tex, a a big chemical company. Gore-Tex Coats, right, those puppy coats. And they've done a couple things. Again, didn't use anything I developed. They didn't pay me anything, so I'm just giving you an example. But they keep their company location small, so um, under about 150 people. So 150 is uh, about as many people as we can keep track of. And so when they division is growing, they'll split off and start another office so that you can keep it small. You get to know everybody. They have a very flat management structure, basically three levels of management, like supervisor, mid level, and, and, um, you know, kind of worker level. They have real transparency on pay. You don't have to guess lots of openness about, you know, three levels of pay, basically, but they don't have it's much more of an inverted, you, um, kind of pyramid. So it's really a servant leader model where the leadership. There's few in them, you can see them all the time, and they're there to help those who are customer-facing or manufacturing-facing create value for the company. So really flat leadership structure. So all those things mean I know who I'm talking to, I have connections with them, and I can see someone and talk to them. I'm not in this giant bureaucracy. Um, and, and, And you know, Peter, and certainly I have too, work with, you know, multinational, you know, Fortune twenty companies, lovely. They have lots of resources. They're a pain in the ass to work with because you know there's so many people and you can't get anything done. And you got to have forty thousand people sign off. We're closing a contract with one of the major professional services organizations whose name I won't mention. It's been a year and a half. I've seen zero dollars. I've had an infinite number of zooms, and
1: you know yeah. they still haven't got to start. It, it drives me nuts. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with you on that one because, like, with without naming names, that I think. The common thread there is just their slow nature in respect to the speed of change. You know, the the challenges that a lot of big organizations face, they're they're not new, but equally the the need for like remediation. Um yeah, kind of a lot of companies aren't, you know, that that quick to to pivot we saw it in the pandemic as well the ones that kind of pivoted quickly the ones that have kind of flatter structure and the ones that struggle and even even today in respect to the evolutions that we're seeing today the ones that struggle to change it are the ones that are so big it's kind of turning a bus just takes forever to turn rather than just that instantaneous spin um but yeah like that that itself there's i guess like one of the things that drew me in 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 that particular book that you wrote was the eight essential management practices? Because I think it's worth elaborating on these and also you know highlighting maybe one or two that you feel that are often neglected within some of these contemporary businesses and why.
0: Yeah, I, I can go through those uh, briefly. So they somehow magically have the acronym oxytocin. Um, and so I'll define each of those and maybe talk about one or two. So the first is ovation, which really means celebrate victories and there's a lot of science on how to do that really effectively. The X is for expectations. So putting in challenge goals for individuals. Uh, the Y is for yield, which is um, once you have trained people, then you should de- delegate generously. Let them own what they're doing. Uh, the T is for transfer. This is when people can uh, craft their own jobs. So you get the best buy-in if not only do I, I you know, show you kind of maximal trust, hey, you decide what you want to work on. So a lot of interesting companies do that. You you decide where you want to be. The O is for openness. So we talked about the importance of uh, uh, transparency. The C is for caring. So as I said earlier on the Moral Molecule book, uh, you know we're going to form relationships with individuals. And if those are caring relationships, if I'm, I'm really committed to helping you as a colleague develop professionally, personally, uh, even spiritually, then that forms a relationship that re- reduces the friction and increases trust. I is for invest, so we want to have a sense of of personal and professional growth. So companies that invest in individuals give them opportunities to grow. That's another sign of trust because I'm putting money on the table to to help you get better. And lastly, the N is for natural, being your authentic self at work. Um, So we don't like fakers, we don't like the the bsers. Uh, You know, if you can just come to work and be who you are, you're not burning all this energy thinking, "Oh, are people looking at me? Did I wear the right clothes today? What you know?" Just be who you are. It's totally fine. And particularly from a leadership perspective. So um, of those, of those eight, they're all very closely related to organizational trust. And so um, we have worked with a lot of companies uh, and and organizations like police departments to actually um, measure those eight factors and then create interventions around one or more of those to actually increase trust, increase performance, and importantly, increase job satisfaction. So uh, if I'm in a less you know, social friction network. I just enjoy my job more. Um, and so um, I, I think that's probably enough. I can go into more detail if you like.
1: In respect to trust, though, trust is a fragile thing. And, you know, we, we see it within business. We see it in personal relationships. We see it in, to a wider extent in politics today. If the, the question I'm interested in asking is if trust is shattered, do you, and do you feel it's genuinely, genuinely something that we can get back or, you know, or is it once it's gone, it's gone? Um, what's your views? Yeah, it's a great question.
0: So uh, I think there's two parts to that. One is that what we find um, across cultures is that there's a big bias towards trusting people, even strangers, hence the the risk of being conned. So first of all, we, we tend to give trust quite freely unless we have some reason not to. So trust is actually very easy to establish. Um, when it's broken, what we find in the research is that It can be repaired if you fairly rapidly own the mistake you made. Hey, I promise you this thing. I didn't do it. I'm really sorry. Make amends and then fix the problem. Be very concrete about this. So we did research, for example, on these um, CEOs, you know, in which their company has some, you know, big failure, BP oil spill, for example, you know, all these kinds of things. They have to trial the CEO. And I don't care how much of a capitalist you are, you kind of love to see this CEO get slammed for doing something bad. You know, we all kind of enjoy that schadenfreude. So we actually had watch, people watch these these apologies that were on video and they were all a little bit dated, so it wasn't in the current news, and measured their brain activity. And consciously, people could not tell whether that, that CEO was being honest, whether that problem was fixed or not, but their brains knew, right? So we're giving off these unconscious signals that reveal with very high accuracy, this guy's BSing me or this guy's really authentic. And so it's really being, again, that authentic self, allowing your emotions to show and also reading the emotions of others. I think one of the great leadership lessons from the Trust Factor book was how important it is as a leader to be tied into all the information that humans are giving off about their emotional states. So if I see you as your supervisor and you are hunched down, you look tired, I should ask about that. Right. So something happened at home. Or have you been working too much? Right. If I want you to continue to work, have the job satisfaction, not quit and go somewhere else, I need to, to plug into that. On the flip side, when people are having a great day, celebrate it. Man, that's the ovation. That's the first O in oxytocin. Right. So I had a woman still works for me. She's worked for me for 20 years, but she was one of my PhD students. And one day she walks in the lab in the morning and she's like walking on air. And for some reason, I want all my graduate students who are my second family to get married, have children, and I get to be Uncle Paul. It's wonderful. Anyway, she walks in and she's just just super happy. I'm like, her name is Beth. I'm like, Beth, what happened to you? Like, are you falling in love? Like, what's happening? You're so happy. And she goes, you know, I can't believe you noticed I was happy. She goes, I've been running with my sister. I've lost 15 pounds. I'm going to do my first 10K in a couple of weeks. And I've never felt better in my life. And she has told me over the years many times that meant so much that I spent 60 seconds to recognize her her positive emotional state. All right. It doesn't, how how hard is that? And what a good trick, it's not really a trick, it's just being human, right? Like celebrate yeah, the wins and commiserate with the losses.
1: Yeah. It's just that ability to be personal with people. If you look at um, some of the great leaders today, they they take the time to get to know people rather than just look at people as individuals within organizations and that, that treat them for who they really are and you know their interests and the highs and the lows. And I think, you know, that's that to me is going to be really interesting because as society evolves, especially with with the advancement of tech at the moment, you know, that how that kind of interplay of the advancement of tech plus the impact that has upon the trust capital be it in the workplace wider culture and wider society at large that is something that yeah i'm I'm intrigued about because i think that traditional workplace is going to evolve dramatically to what we see today and um yeah in 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 that respect i'd love to get your take on not only trust but the impact upon workplace culture and society at large
0: yeah it's it's really important uh because we spend so much time at work so i think you know, it's really work-life integration now, right? We're working, it's late at night for you. You're still working, right? This counts as work, right? You Mm -hmm. could just be, I don't know, watching a movie or sleeping or something else. So I think having that balance and having also the sense of purpose that what I'm doing is valuable to the world, to society, at least to yourself is really important. We've actually, even pre-pandemic, measured the neurologic responses of like this 2D interaction versus in-person. The 2D actually is not that bad. So this neurologic state of called immersion, which is the value your brain gets from social emotional experiences, is between 50 and 80% online of what you get in person, which is pretty darn good. It's the whole reason we cry at movies. Not you and me because we're too macho, but I've heard that occasionally people cry at the end of movies. Like that's a 2D image. You're aware, you know, it's a fictional story. And yet still when the boy dies and the girl is sad, you know, we cry. So, you know, that's tells us that we don't need that in person necessarily. Having said that from a leadership perspective, it is important to get that in-person time occasionally. So I think, you know, from a leadership perspective, you should see your team in person at least once a month, all day, right? If it's not once a month, it's always on this kind of 2D window or even the VR. We've been doing a lot of studies on VR, pretty much just like 2D, honestly, at this point, you know, still a little bit laggy, still a little cartoony. Show up. Right, if if it's important, if those people are important to you, if they're creating value for the organization, show up, take them to lunch, talk to them in person. Right, the problem with these meetings is we schedule them. Right, so we schedule this recording. Right, and so we have a start time and end time. But if I'm hanging around your office, I run into a coffee, we have lunch together. Right, there's a different kind of rapport that we develop, and it's that rapport, that human connection. We're back to community that builds the community of people. Working for joint
1: goals. Yeah, you you mentioned at the beginning of, of that was about immersion, and obviously that that brings me to your latest book. And bear in mind, yeah, the the topic of immersion. What what spurred you into exploring immersion and also its role in in our happiness? Because I found that really interesting.
0: Yeah, it, it, this this work came out of work funded by the post 9 11 war on terror. So we were tasked uh, by the Department of Defense and some other agencies with maybe three letters to identify signals in the brain that in combination would accurately and consistently predict what people would do after a message or an experience. So we were contracted to create a neurologic prediction engine in order to train soldiers to be more persuasive in their communications with our collaborators and and potentially with our enemies. Hey, collaborate with us. Everything's going to be good. How do we create persuasive speech and so we spent, I spent more than 15 years working on that. And um, you see, I work very slowly, Peter, everything's real slow for me. And what we found is that, you know, the brain is this very energy hungry organ. Um, you don't invest a lot in a message or an experience unless it's sufficiently valuable to you. So in this work over many years and lots of mistakes, we identified what seems to be the brain's valuation mechanism for social emotional experiences. So if I can create a, a, a experience or a communication that is sufficiently valuable to you, you're very likely to act on it and you're certainly going to remember it. And that value comes from two core components in the brain. One is you've got to be present, right? If I'm doing something over here, then our conversation is not going to be very interesting. Second, it's got to generate emotional uh, response in me. It's got to be, you know, you have to get me to care about this thing. So if I'm present and you can convey it in some way that goes, this is really important to you. This is emotionally important. Then your brain goes, oh, I'm going to invest the energy to actually process this experience or this information. And once I process it, it goes in my brain and goes, oh, important thing. I should probably do that. Right. So anyway, once we did that, then the next question is, why do so many experiences we have suck? I mean, you know, in the vernacular, go to the grocery store, go into the department of motor vehicles. Like, why are these things not Spectacular. Why can't we get fabulous all the time? And so we've done many, many studies and then create a software platform that allows anybody to measure what the brain loves in real time by applying algorithms in the cloud to data we pull from smartwatches and fitness sensors. And so the applications here are in marketing, second by second data in real time from a ton of people and optimize your messaging and marketing. Um, We have a lot of users in the corporate training and education space. So how can I actually not put learners to sleep? How can I get information in people's brains effectively? How can I show the ROI from corporate training? And man, we've made tons of progress. I mean, uh, Accenture is one of our biggest clients in that space. have been very open about it. I can talk about it. Accenture spends $1 billion a year to upskill their employees. And they've been using our platform for almost six years now to really optimize how they uh, design and deliver the content uh, to their employees to increase the ROI, increase the amount of information I gets in your brain. And so immersion is that neurologic metric. And then lastly, now we're working in the emotional wellness space. So we've talked a lot about connection, community, um, extending health span, and to have a metric and a goal for social interactions to build up my emotional fitness. That's the latest thing. And I'm super excited to share that. We have a free app called Tuesday that anybody can use if you've got a supported wearable that uh, captures the value you're getting in real time from hanging out with you, Peter, or going to the pub or um, watching a movie or anything with social emotional content. I can see that data in real time. And I have a ring to close that learns about me and helps me build up my social emotional connection. So as I said earlier, I'm a big introvert. I can spend 10 hours in the lab, not talk to anybody, be very happy, but I know that's not good for me, not good for my brain. And so, you know, I believe in my own research. So I have invested more of my time and energy into building up those relationships so that I have that good emotional fitness. I have people, you know, I have a friend who will call me up and say, Bla, blah, blah, we're doing this. And say, hey, I love you, man. I love you too. And how great is that that someone outside of our family says that they love you? And as long as I really mean it, not, fake Hollywood love, but like, that's the most important thing, right? If I have that core group of, you know, for me, maybe six, eight people who I'm not related to, who I can call up at 3am and say, you know, I'm having a crisis. I need you to come now. And they'll show up. Like that's freaking amazing. And if you have that in your life, you know, your life is going to be so much happier, but also you'll live longer and live healthier. So how awesome is that?
1: Some work around like the blue zones and stuff that was a while ago, um and I think Netflix had a a, se- a series in respect to some of the commonalities that we're finding within communities where they were living longer, becoming centenarians, and looking at that, like you know, community and togetherness and all and all that good stuff in respect to social connection, like that was that was something that it's proven, it's it's evident, and from a friendship base, like you know, it's it's funny as we as we grow older, we 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 begin life as potentially like a social butterfly and you're bouncing off different um, networks of friends but then in time you you realize that the friends of true meaning and substance uh you know they are a group of you know five six people that you know that you can lean on at any time and they you can support them and they can support you and and that's the beauty of connection in respect to connections that matter and like look reading reading your book immersion. I I remember looking at um, some of the four main pillars that you talk about. We've we've talked a lot about social connection, but I'd love to just talk a little bit more about the others in respect to novelty, challenge, and control. And also Mm -hmm. from your respect, like which resonates most, most with you and why? Yeah, that's
0: a great question. You know, there are a number of factors that create an extraordinary experience. We like things that we know, but something that's got some novelty to it. We like things that are Difficult, but achievable. We like multi sensory experiences. All of these, um, increase immersion levels, measurable neurologic immersion measures. Again, I'm using this in a technical sense. This is a, a you know, a, a data series coming out of your brain that we can measure in real time. And so when we think about, you know, creating uh, something that is extraordinary, it's not only creating value for a customer in the kind of business setting. Um, it creates a craving in the brain to repeat that experience so that. Uh, Extraordinary experiences increase customer lifetime value, which is the goal I think of every business. Right? I want that return loyal customer who continues to spend money with us because he or she is getting so much value not only from the product or service but from the experience built around it. And so that's really where the book comes in. How do we actually build that in into marketing, into entertainment, into education and training? Um, And so you know, all those are super important. The the subtitle of the book is about happiness. And so what we found is that when you have these extraordinary experiences, as they accumulate, you begin to train your brain to be present, to be emotionally open. And because of that, because of neuroplasticity, sorry, neuroplasticity, slight like the day for me too, we're able to actually expand our ability to connect to others. So the the quote, business experiences we're having when they're extraordinary, an amazing movie. Think about how you feel when you've seen an amazing movie. You feel emotionally open. You feel connected. A great experience that when you're shopping or whatever that is, you just feel better about yourself and you're a nicer person. You're open to more kind of connections. That's why we have, you know, we take dates to the movies and the mm-hmm. food, by the way, food is also a celebratory act because we want to induce that emotional experience that opens us up. And so the more open we are, the more we can build those friendships, those important, valuable relationships, and the longer we live, which is amazing, right? So, those humans—they drive us crazy sometimes, but also we really need them.
1: Yeah, like the customer experience thing is—is is, um, I'm interested in exploring a little bit more because why do you ex- why do you believe extraordinary customer experience is so important? Like I I, I believe it is as well, but. In respect to your experience, why do you believe it's so important? Yeah, when we measure this, because we built a platform and we have people using it every day, we have uh, the book's
0: based on 50,000 brain observations. So we just have lots and lots of data. And Essentially, when you have, let's say, a shopping experience, I'm looking for clothing or whatever I'm doing, but when I have that sales agent who assists me, who seems to really care about my outcomes, who's not just trying to earn a commission, that social interaction, banks, banks, uh, uh, bumps up that immersion substantially. So it's that human component that makes it more valuable. It's the watching the movie alone by yourself in your bedroom versus going to a theater with friends. Even a theater by yourself, but you have humans around you, you're laughing together, right? So you know, the book has examples of all of that where that social component, uh, at least until you know the robots take over and AI runs everything, the social component is still really valuable to us. Mm-hmm. And so the extent that you can make that EX to CX mapping from employee experience to consumer experience, that's really where the magic happens. Uh, so one of the companies I work with a lot is the Container Store, which is a, a US-based company that sells super, super nice containers for everything. And in uh, retail in the United States, the average turnover, employee turn- turnover is about 66%. It's less than 10% of the Container Store. They hire people. They spend about 80 hours in the first year, 80 hours training them before they go on the floor. I mean, it's an amazing place. And you walk in and you're like, okay, this is a $100 trash can, which is gorgeous. And now this person is going to tell me why it's worth a hundred bucks. So I, I'm a cheap guy, Peter. And I bought a $100 trash can that I love every day of my life. Stainless steel, perfect mechanism. It's gorgeous. I would never normally spend that if I didn't have that human going, you know what? This is going to change your life because every day you got to put crap in the trash 10 times a day, right? Why not have that experience be just perfect? The lid, it's just gorgeous. It doesn't get fingerprints. It's, I love it so much. So anyway, thank you, Container Store, for that little story. But that's the experience, right? Like We're all kind of cheap. We don't want to waste money on stuff. I can get the tra- plastic trash can or... I could have the world's most perfectly engineered trash can, but I need a human to help me make that decision. So, having said that, everybody, if it's an important decision buying a car, buying a house, buying a company, getting married, getting divorced, sleep on it, right? We are influenced like the con man by bad actors or people who just have other goals than our own benefit in mind. So, if it's important, if you sleep on it, that information consolidates. You get categorized and you make better decisions if you sleep on it overnight. So don't just go shopping like crazy. But, you know, retail therapy is a real thing, right? It feels good. Mm-hmm. First of all, I got some nice goody. I'm looking for a prop. You know, I have some wonderful brand new Bluetooth headphones. And the person in the store was awesome. And I talked to them and they told me all the details that I probably wouldn't have read in the manual or whatever. And so really that I think is the core for the experience economy, which is what most of what we want now
1: yeah definitely like you want brands to be connected to to people and and when people really have a understanding of the brands and the companies that they work for and and akin to simon Sinek, like that the 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 actual why then yeah you get more positive experiences in respect to companies like that eighty hour training you don't you know to compare and contrast that with some behemoths that we see in the world you don't get that level of training and because of that you see huge levels of people leaving in their droves and they're wondering why they can't retain staff and it's simplistic things like if you treat people well if you look after people if you provide people opportunities to to grow and be nurtured and develop then you know we have opportunities for people to show up in the best version to themselves and and provide the best impact to be it the employees that they work for and also the customers that they they, uh, they serve and it's not a yeah, it's it's not an overly comp- complex thing. It just it's putting people mm-hmm. centre stage in respect to your business, and yeah, you know if we have that as an opportunity, and yeah, like anything's possible in that in that respect. I yeah, was so feedback
0: sorry. from that. So now the, the customer, I'm sorry, the customer service agent feels so great because he or she made your experience wonderful. You feel great, right? So then we have this nice virtuous cycle in which we're really taking care of each other. It's real care. And now I want to keep doing that. So, you know, this is the reason if you're just a, you know, again, a sort of narrow profit maximizing capitalist, you still want to have great employee experience, have great customer experience because it works for everybody, keeps people in their jobs, keep people satisfied. And, you know, most people don't leave their jobs for more money. They leave their jobs because my boss is a jerk. I don't like working here. People are not very
1: nice. So yeah, let's make some great workplaces. No, but talking about the desire to create great workplaces, like a lot of companies today, they're stumped in respect to organizational transformation. We are in a point of point of change whereby organizations are having to change both with external factors forcing that change upon them and internal employees and customers wanting more from the company. So well, I guess... Why do yeah, why does why do so many companies find organizational transformation so hard?
0: Well, it's a big topic talki- topic. First, I think we get locked into particular ways of doing things. So again, we our brains are very lazy. Once we establish a pathway, it's very efficient to keep doing the same thing. We don't like change because change is metabolically costly. That's the first Um, The second is that there's a fear of the uncertainty, right? So we're going to change things. It's like better or worse. I mean, I don't really know. And so again, it's from a brain. I'm always going to come from the brain perspective. My scientist has on at all times, Peter. So Mm -hmm. from the brain perspective, I don't, there's a new thing. I don't really know. I'm not really bought into it. Um, But lastly, I think there's a sense of poor measurement, right? So I really want to know if I'm going to implement this new program, if I'm going to transform my company, what are my outcome measures? So I have to wait a year or two years to see a sales increase or job turnover decreases or whatever. So I mentioned i work worked with the police departments. So as you know, you know, lots of kind of pushback on police being a little bit too violent, at least in some, some cases with criminals and kind of a negative view towards the police. And there's a lot of turnover in policing in the first couple of years. And so we worked on programs where, uh, younger police officers who are working nice and weekends and not the best time and kind of screws up their family life, had a chance to see what their supervisor, supervisors does. So they know the supervisor, but what's the, the dude above that guy and invest on a day doing, this is a generally lieutenant or a captain doing their job, seeing what they do. They're getting a sense of how this profession evolves and why it's, you know, they kind of know why it's important, but you know, what it means to be off the front lines and still creating service for the people around you was really successful, successful at reducing uh, job turnover. And so it's that kind of thing where you can kind of run experiments, be clear on the outcomes and then measure whether you're actually making a difference. And I think that measurement has got to be rapid. It's got to be objective. um, It's got to be, you know, really creating value for the organization, which to me means creating value and value for the employees.
1: Yeah, that, that value piece is is key because when you align value to people's values, then they have more connection and there's more resonance in respect to what there's a deeper meaning. You know, back to that, going to the movies and having an emotional connection to to movies. Like if you can create an emotional bond with people and um, through commonality, shared values, and you know, like that, that builds trust, that builds uh, relationships, and in respect to the building of relationships, it builds prosperous companies. It builds. Progression and and that's that's the advantage that we have at the moment. I'm, I'm intrigued because obviously looking at the the neuroscience, what does the neuroscience say that leaders should be doing specifically in respect to organizational transformation?
0: Yeah, I think it's a couple of things. One is to be very clear on what I call transcendent purpose. Why are we here, ultimately? So you know, I think two of the greatest management thinkers of the 20th century, Peter Drucker, was on my faculty uh, for. 10 years with me before he passed away, and um Edward Stemming both said for every organization, their purpose ultimately is to improve people's lives. For profit, nonprofit government, right? This is what we want. We want to improve our lives. That's why we're paying for this good or service. Um, so that's the first is having a clarity on what our purpose is. How do we, how do we improve lives? How do we transform human beings to help them live better? And then make that purpose a lived purpose. It's got to be alive in everyone's lips all the time. So some years ago I was with a group and I visited LinkedIn. Every group I met with at LinkedIn said, as I walked in the room, whereas our group walked in the room, they said, at LinkedIn, our purpose is to help our members be more successful and more productive. And that's measurable, right? LinkedIn has all your work history. They can see if you're being at least more successful if you're getting promotions. Productive might be a little harder, but uh, at least you're not getting fired, right? So, you know, you have some indirect measures of that. So they they were, quote, forced to say that, but they said, look, if by the by the second or third time, I'm like, okay, dudes, you guys are like in a cult. What's going on here? They said, no, we say this every day because it's a screen. And if we say that, then we have to have in our back of our minds, is this something we should be doing? Does it increase one or, the, one or both of those metrics? If it doesn't, We shouldn't be doing it. So I love that. Be super clear about what we do. I find so few organizations have that. Maybe they have some statement on the wall, you know, our mission statement or whatever. It's got to be alive. It's got to be part of that DNA of the company. Everyone's got to be thinking about it all the time. And for me, Peter, and please push back if you disagree, I think it's not only uh, improving people's lives, I think it's really transforming people's lives. I think the best companies are literally transforming the way people live, uh, whether they're they're happy or sad, extending their lives. This is what we really want, right? We're, you know, I'm happy enough, but can you transform my life? That'd be awesome.
1: Yeah, I think... Like for me, purpose is, yeah, like a lot of people get confused in, in respect to purpose and people look at it as being another like CSR exercise or we've got this statement that we stick on a wall and, and that's what it is, but it, it's totally not that at all. It's like a purpose is a heartbeat of an organization and it has to be beating and you have to, it has to, it's it's the lifeblood. So without that kind of constant flow of within your organisation, within your people, within the communities you serve, the constant narrative of this is what we stand for and represent, and these are the reasons why. You know, with, without that, what is your company? And so, the the very essence of what a company is and what people are it's it's that essence. It's it's the heartbeat. It's the why. And then, equally, the the key part of purpose is not simply talking about this is what we do. And this it's it's turning that into action and actually galvanizing people into shared movements for change because why are we here we're here i i believe we're here to impact upon the world and it's not simply about turning up and doing work and going home like it's about ensuring that the generations that follow us are in basically inheriting a world of us that is in a better state than the one that we were born into and if you have that that constant progression and you if you kind of enf- encourage people to think holistically in respect to the opportunities that we have ahead of us then it galvanizes people towards that shared mission and it's it's constant it's not something that you know it's this is our purpose this year it can ev- it can evolve uh, just as people evolve as our interests evolve as our values evolve so should your purpose and that to me is live purpose. It's people that stand for and represent something, but then equally uh willing to act upon that to drive movements for change for the progression of people and planet. Like, like it's That's what I believe. That's why I kind of set up Purpose Made as a business because I, I think that we need to be cultivating that future conscious thinking and behavior to make sure that people are more conscious of the challenges, but more embracive of the opportunities that are, are await us. And, you know, that's that's... How we build better communities, better societies, and better companies because you know, like it's a desire to do more and believe you can do more and deliver more.
0: I love that you said, "Act on it." It's not enough just to know it; you have to act on it. And even you know, the hyper capitalist Jack Welch, toward the end of his life, has even said two things to support what you said, Peter. Which is, first, he said, "Management 2.0 is all about trust. It's not about top-down, you know, micromanaging." Sorry, for the younger viewers, uh, Jack Welsh, very famous CEO of General Electric, was called Neutron Jack because he would just slash out parts of the company that were not functioning well. The second thing you said before he died was, you know, monitoring stock price is the stupidest thing to do, right? If you're doing the right things, your stock price, the value of your company, your profits will reflect that. You don't want to manage the stock price or even quarterly profit goals. Those are okay metrics, but they're driven by all kinds of other things. So do the right things and then, you know, the valuation will happen.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, from from a purpose perspective, what,
0: what is live purpose to you? I think purpose is knowing, as you said, why you're here. What value do I create for those around me? Uh, whether those are my colleagues, whether those are my customers, uh, whether those are my family members. So I think ultimately all of us are here for service. And service is how we invest in relationships. And again, that could be a customer relationship. It could be a friendship. You know, you can't survive without, uh, in terms of having a relationship, unless you're serving others. Mm-hmm. So I think purpose is really about service, willing service. Uh, maybe sometimes unwilling. Sometimes we're, we're under the gun and we don't feel like doing, you know, providing the great service. but. Do it anyway. The so great thing about neuroscience is you know, you can trick your brain to do all kinds of things that you don't think you can do, right? You can get used to jumping out of airplanes. You can use used to lots of things. Um, and so if you don't feel like you have this service motivation inside you, just fake it till you make it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it feeds back into what we talked about at the very beginning, that like the levels of happiness and the oxytocin. Like if you're doing work that serves beyond simply the, the self and more to, to the service of others, yeah, it makes you feel better. It's it's, it's simple. It's it, that's that's the power of purpose. It 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 allows you it's to
0: kind of right now. There's my real data. So that smile means I'm getting more value talking to you right now than I'm at baseline. And my background is winter, so I'm a little bit stressed. I don't know why, but yeah. So I'm you know I, I think we have these tools that let us see inside our brains so that we understand that what we feel like we should probably do anyway, we can measure and get better at it. So, you know, I'm the measurement guy, Peter. I just want to help people have the tools to live more effective lives, be more connected,
1: have more love, have more happiness. Definitely. I could talk to you all day, but um, just to close out, I wanted to ask you what would your key thoughts and takeaways that you'd like to leave with our
0: audience? Gosh, I think I just said it. I think it's really about connecting to others, knowing your purpose, serving others. And um, when you do those things, Um, almost always good things will follow, right? We're always going to have some stumbles in life. And that's why we need these people who love us around us. But if we're doing the right things and we're doing it with the right people, I think most of us are going to be okay. Uh, So I don't have the doom and gloom view of the world. I don't watch the news. I don't want to watch, you know, I think I know why I'm here. I think, you know, why you're here, Peter. And, uh, and I want to do the same with you. I'm I'm a great privilege to spend this hour with you and I want to be of service to you. So please call on me anytime and I'm happy to help you any way I can. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure.